I'm John Aslan, and this is This Week in APA. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of This Week in APA. This is a special edition as we are going to talk with Fritz Light, who uh, was the company president uh, back between 1992 and 1995. He took over for the game founder, Dick Seitz, after uh, Seitz uh, uh, passed away uh, in 92. And uh, uh, Fritz has been around a, a long time, and I hope he doesn't isn't offended by that. But we mean that in the in the most in the most respectful way. Uh, with Fritz also is company president, current company president, John Herson. So I want to welcome both of you to the podcast, and uh, uh, this should be fun. We're, we'll probably do maybe a four part series, and this is part one. So guys, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks, John. Not a problem. Great, great uh, to get this thing started. We've talked about it for a while, but uh, uh, what we're going to do today is really talk about the early years. And this is the early years of Fritz Light, not of the game company. So Fritz, talk to us about your upbringing and uh, where you were born and uh, start really from the beginning and what your life was like as a youngster. I don't know how far back you want to go. I was, I was, (laughs) I was told by my own father that I was a very funny-looking baby. <laughs> <laughs> hey, all babies are funny-looking, Fritz. Let's be honest. Did he try to deny that you were his son? <laughs> no, no, he never went that far. At least not to my knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so you were an odd-looking baby. That's a good start to a life. I was, uh, I was born in uh, uh, Danville, Pennsylvania. Uh, and my first residence was in Orangeville, Pennsylvania, uh, pretty much in both cases in the middle of nowhere in central Pennsylvania. Uh, we moved from Orangeville when I was three years old, and I really have no memory of life in Orangeville. We moved to an even smaller community of probably about 25 called Let Kill, Pennsylvania. And I'm told it was there that uh, I somehow developed an absolute with an absolute fascination and even obsession with baseball and balls and bats and gloves. Um, I don't know where that uh, fascination originated. My dad was a baseball fan, but he wasn't a, a nutcase about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, for some reason, it always fascinated me. I was uh, luckily able to watch from our backyard uh, the church softball games which were in a field uh, next to the elementary school, which was close to our house. It was the country, so it was probably a quarter mile or so away, but it was easy to watch, especially if when I used the outhouse, uh, I, left the, I left the door open so I wouldn't miss any of the action uh, until, until my mother caught me one day and advised that I wasn't 
<laughs> I wasn't to uh, use that method. Uh, we did have indoor plumbing, but we also had an outhouse, and uh, I did use it uh, during the summertime anyway for that purpose. Oh. But, uh, baseball uh, always fascinated me, uh, continues to, to to this day, and uh, it's uh, been a big part of my life in one way or another. So you were born, what year were you born? Uh, I think it was uh, 1996, if I'm not mistaken. 1996. You're a young man. <laughs> Actually, 1946. Oh, okay. To be, brutal, to be brutally honest. <laughs> so you become a baseball fan at a very early age. Some of that probably attributed to your dad. Um, when were you uh, introduced to APA? Because, you know, the game company – uh, it started in, in 1951. So, you know, right there, you're, you're in the cusp there, right at the beginning of, of the company. So talk about how you were uh, uh, introduced to APA. I can tell you exactly when that happened. It happened on Thanksgiving Day in 1953 when I was seven. I had, uh, coincidentally, an uncle who was a friend and college uh, friend of Dick Seitz. And uh, for... Uh, for a Christmas, an early Christmas gift, which I received on Thanksgiving when the extended family got together, I got this game, which I think I recounted at the convention. Uh, was told it was a baseball game before I even opened the box, and uh, when I looked at it, it was uh, a bit disappointing because the uh, even in 1953, the packaging didn't have a whole lot of pizzazz. <laughs> right. uh, but once I got a little help from my dad in getting started, I was uh, uh, I was obviously hooked on the game. Uh, I played it mostly by myself and uh, with my parents. My mom would uh, accommodate me occasionally uh, because we lived in in truly in the country and uh, there weren't friends at the house very often. But it was my uh, it was my winter activity. Summer I liked to be outside and uh, that was. Uh, APA baseball certainly dominated uh, my inside activities from uh, 1953 until the time we moved, uh, which was a year later in 1954. We moved to the Pennsylvania coal regions to a town called Taylor, which adjoined Scranton, the uh, birthplace of President Biden, right. and, uh, uh, who is even older than I am. <laughs> <laughs> And to be a political leader, leader these days, you got to be at least 80, I guess. I better, I, better, I better avoid politics for the rest of this discussion. <laughs> in any case, Taylor was different in that uh, uh, it was a town. Uh, there were a lot of friends close by, and I introduced APA to innumerable other kids, some of whom bought it, I'm sure. Uh, and uh, it continued to occupy my winters and the winners of a lot of my friends and uh that continued until 1958 uh 1958 was a, a big year for baseball i not only had apa but uh, the small town of taylor had little league for the first time yeah so i got to put on a uniform which anyone who ever did uh will never forget the feeling of that uh we moved from taylor unfortunately in the fall of 1958 so I had a, to Lansdale, Pennsylvania, first exit off the northeast extension of the Turnpike in Pennsylvania, about 25 miles from Philadelphia. So I had a, no, a whole new group of people to introduce the game to, which I did. 
I also got the football game. Uh, I believe, I'm not quite as certain of this, but I believe it was right after the uh, Eagles won the NFL championship in 1960. Mm-hmm. And we spent a lot of time playing the football game too. Yeah. Uh, that kind of dwindled, uh, as is the profile of a lot of people, as I uh, moved into the mid-teenage years and uh, found other interests and didn't have quite as much free time. Um, but uh, until I was uh, until I was 18, uh, from the time I was seven, APA was certainly a very, very big part of my life. You know, and, and something I want to ask you, because and I don't think we uh, uh, talked about this in our one on one interview uh, back about three years ago, or I don't think it was brought up at the convention when you were there. But uh, you mentioned your uncle and Dick Sites were friends and you got the game probably the second or third uh, year that that APA was uh, an actual entity. Did your did your uncle play the game? Or you said he was a college uh, a mate of of Dick Seitz. Um, was he aware of the game and that, and probably aware before Dick even uh, began the business that he was onto something there? To, to my knowledge, my uncle was only interested in APA uh, as it affected Dick personally and as a business. He okay. knew something about sports, but. Uh, 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 he wasn't a guy who was going to be uh, distracted at dinner by a game being on TV in the next mm-hmm. room, uh, okay. if you uh-huh. get the idea. So to, I don't know that he ever played at Bob. Maybe we even played it together, and I don't remember. There are a lot of things I don't remember, but uh, uh, that's uh, I don't recall that there was ever any playing of the game by him, at least not uh, in my presence. Okay. Um, John, anything you want to add? No, you're doing great. <laughs> John's just there to keep me in line, Fritz. You know, if, if, if I go off the rails, John's there to. No, I want to learn from Fritz. That's why I'm. <laughs> Nobody, nobody's explained to me why I'm here yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that all comes out at the end. It, it all comes back full circle at the end of the, of the series, uh, Fritz. So you, you feel like the guy who, who was uh, Perot's uh, vice president running mate who said that at a, at a debate? Oh, Admiral, jeez, uh, uh, I can't remember. I can picture him in uniform, and I can't remember his name. Uh, who, whose running mate was it? Ross Perot. Perot's, yeah. Oh, Ross Perot. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he, yeah. He, 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 whoever it was, and I wish I could remember the name, he was ridiculed by the media, and he was, he was a true American hero. That was shame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I regret that I can't remember his name. Uh, that's why nobody wants to go into politics for a a lot a lot of reasons but that might be one um all right dick let's continue on here so you know as a young man that you played the game and then you kind of got away from a little bit like we all do when uh you know things come into our lives that uh, weren't there prior so uh uh, talk about what when you got back into the game or what your life was like as a uh as a, a late teenager and into your early twenties, uh, probably not that much different from uh, most other guys that age. Uh, obviously, it was a different time. Uh, there was a different uh, there was a different environment. Uh, things were 
a lot more restrictive than they are these days and uh, particularly more restricted in my case. One embarrassing situation I had when I was a teenager was very consistently I had an earlier curfew than my dates had. Anyway, uh, as far as Antibot goes, I didn't I didn't play a lot from the time I was say 18 uh, until, gee, probably not until I was in the army. And the same uncle uh, for the same holiday sent me a game, sent me the the World Series game uh, in Vietnam in 1971 mm. at Thanksgiving. And obviously, I didn't have a whole lot of time to play it there. Right. But uh, I did once in a while with a uh, another guy who had played APA in his uh, childhood, another uh, lieutenant at headquarters. Uh, and that reinterested me when I left the Army in 1972 and was extremely happy to leave. Um, I fully intended to go back to Johnson & Johnson. Uh, I, I skipped that part. When I graduated college in 1968, uh, my first job was with Johnson and Johnson in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Unfortunately, I only lasted four months until I was drafted. And, uh, uh, the military was, uh, certainly a learning experience and I'm glad now that I had it, but I, I couldn't say that I enjoyed any particular day of the nearly three and a half years that I was in the army. Anyway, uh, I received this game in Vietnam and I was, uh, I was, kind of thrilled. I remember chuckling when I saw it. I had no idea what to think when I opened the package. And I did play a couple of games over there. When I returned, I fully intended, when I returned from Vietnam, I fully intended to go back to Johnson and Johnson. But uh, through the same uncle, my uncle Ace, uh, Dick Seitz had uh, somehow made my parents aware that he was looking for someone to uh, understudy him for the time being and eventually take over the, uh, uh, the general running of the company. So I wound up going there for an interview and, uh, there were, uh, like with most choices in life, there were positives and negatives in both sides, but, uh, going to APA was just a, a choice in the end that I couldn't resist. Uh, and that's, uh, that's how I wound up there. You know, and, and that's kind of interesting, too, because here, you know, you were a kid who, who really almost 69 years ago to today was was introduced to the game at Thanksgiving by your uncle. And then here you come full circle. I mean, you know, you, you kind of lapse of the game a little bit. You don't play it a whole lot. And then you get out of the army and here you are talking to your uncle's good friend, Dick Seitz, and he offers you a job at the company. I mean. It, was it kind of a, a surreal feeling or was it like, well, it's just a job offer and, and I'm, I'm going to take it. Uh, there was uh, some of both of those feelings. Uh, obviously I needed a job. Uh, I had one at Johnson Johnson if I wanted it, but yes, it was kind of surreal. This wasn't something that had ever even crossed my mind uh, in any way. And uh, one, one interesting thing about the interview process is I had one interview and uh, uh, at the end, as far as I was concerned, things were inconclusive. And uh, I asked Mr. Seitz, as I called him at that point, uh, if he would be getting back in touch with me. And he said, well, I, I don't understand. And I said, well, uh, where, where do we go from here? And he said, well, I, I offered you the job already. <laughs> 
<laughs> apparently, you. apparently the uh, interview itself was the job offer. <laughs> were, it, were either of you ever at the uh, APA facility in Lancaster? Oh, yeah. I was many times. Can you, yeah. can you picture the front door uh, with, absolutely. A, with the glass surrounding it? Yeah. Uh, when the sun was at a certain point, and we had this problem occasionally with customers, uh, you couldn't really see the glass. And as I left the interview, apparently uh, an apparently successful interview, although I hadn't realized it, I walked headfirst into that glass. <laughs> in those in those days, you didn't need to go into concussion protocol, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I, I do remember that it hurt. I had a big bump on my head. <laughs> what, a, what a way to finish an interview. Hey, Fritz, you don't have to answer this, but uh, how much did, were you getting paid when you first started? Not much. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't that wasn't the reason for selecting the job. But uh, I did have, uh, uh, besides the obvious uh, belief in the product line uh, and the familiarity with it, uh, I had the promise of uh, uh, at least partial ownership in the short term if things worked out and uh, uh, an opportunity to take over the company eventually. That eventually turned out to be a lot longer than I thought it would be. Mm. But uh, uh, yeah, that was that was the compelling reason. Well, the, well, the, the, the immediate salary was certainly not uh, exorbitant, but it was a very small company and I understood that. Yeah. And, and that was kind of what I was thinking too. I mean, here you were at Johnson & Johnson, albeit for just a short time, but it had to be a total different world, you know, interviewing and, and taking a job at Johnson & Johnson. Of course, you had the years where you were in the service, but then you come back and, and then you go to work for a very, very small company that prints games. So they, a, a, two different worlds, obviously. If, if the uh, opportunity had uh, uh, existed this way, uh, and it probably wouldn't have, if I had the choice to make over again, I would have gone back to Johnson & Johnson for a couple of years if I had thought the app opportunity would be there later on. Uh, yeah, it would, have, it would have helped me a great deal to have some big company experience, which I'd only had four months of. And of course, the U.S. Army is a very big operation, but it isn't <laughs> it isn't run like most uh, for profits. So yeah. uh, experience with a big company would have been very helpful. But uh, had I done that, uh, chances are the position in Apple would have been available a couple of years down the road. Somebody else would have been found. Sure, yeah. Not, not like I was the only person who could do that job. So. And and it's also interesting to note that you go into the interview and, and are told, you know, again, because it's such a small company, you know, you're kind of being groomed to be my successor uh, when I either decide to leave or, or uh, what happened is, is after his death, but um, I, I, I guess you, you know, I guess you felt like, hey, this is an opportunity. If if it doesn't work out and it looks like it's going south, you know, I always got other opportunities elsewhere. But, uh, you know, it's tough. I, I think a lot of people in your era and if uh, someone of your age would have probably opted for the safer job at a much bigger company like Johnson & Johnson. But you took a leap of faith with Apple. I, there is there was one other negative factor for Johnson and Johnson, which I should mention, and I, I can't I can't recreate entirely my state of mind at that time. But Johnson and Johnson uh, for management trainees, which I still would have been considered uh, mm -hmm. since I only had four months with the company. Uh, all management trainees worked on the floor for at least two years. 
supervising operations in a particular department. And I thought and think to this day, that was exactly the right way to do things. You had to learn how things were made uh, to move on up, uh, no matter where you went, whether it was uh, personnel, it was as it was called in those days, or uh, uh, planning and estimating or whatever. You had to have experience on the floor first. However, the experience on the floor required that you work shifts along with uh, the employees who work the shifts. Yep. Right. After uh, three and a half years in the army, uh, worked, uh, <laughs> a three uh, when I during the four months I was there, I worked many shifts from three in the afternoon until seven the next morning. Uh, uh, often wow. seven days a week, and that it was it was particularly difficult in 1968 because the management trainees, like I eventually did, were all getting drafted. And of course, it hadn't occurred to anyone in those days that a woman could be a manager of any kind. So uh, they were they were always short on trainees. Anyway, uh, one as I said, one negative in going back to Johnson and Johnson was going on shift work for a couple of years, which really didn't appeal to me after three and a half years in the army. So, yeah, yeah, but still, a pretty good leap of faith to go to a, to a small company. Yeah, and, sure. Well, I, I was sold on the product. I, I felt yeah. I felt the I felt security in the company because I thought the products were so terrific. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to we're going to stop here shortly because now we're get, then we're going to get into you working for the company and working directly under Dick Sites. But before we do that, got to ask you if two of the guys who are synonymous with the name of APA, Skeet Carr, Vera Lincoln, were they there when you joined the company? Oh, yes. They'd been there for several years. Yeah, I believe that Skeet started in. Sixty four, maybe. Yeah, a long time. Uh, and and Verl probably about the same time, but he was in the military as well. So I'm not really sure on the timetable anymore, but I think he began to work there before he went into the military and returned. He was a Marine. Uh, but I, I honestly don't remember the sequence. But yeah, they had they yeah. were both quite senior there by the time I started. Yeah. And yeah, how not- did they treat you when you first started? If you knew those two guys, uh, and you know at least one of them, uh, they don't treat anyone badly. <laughs> no, they don't. No, they were very, very easy to work with from from day one. Yeah, but but you know the other thing I would think of now. You again, you got Dick Sites, you got Ski Car, and you got Vera Lincoln, and and I'm not sure. I guess people, you know, folding boxes and and packing product, but you know they had to see you walk in the door, and they didn't know you from Adam, and and here they're saying, wait a minute, this guy's applying for a job he's getting a job and he's going to be dick's understudy and and take over the company one day do you do you think they ever and 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 i know a skeet i never really got to know a vero although i i talked to him every year i go to lancaster to pick up my cards on the first day they were available but uh did did you get any vibe from them that like uh you know hey who is this guy and why did did we not get offered or maybe they did get offered you have any any knowledge of that uh, nothing that occurred directly with me, and uh, uh, I will say I'd had some, despite my youth, I'd had some management experience before that, a little bit in Johnson and Johnson, sure. and a good deal in the army. So I, I had some idea as to how to uh, uh, get started in a position like that. However, I was told, um, I was told by Dick, maybe a year or two after I started, that uh, somebody, and he didn't identify the somebody. Uh, asked if I was asked him if I was going to be replacing someone and he said yes he's going to be replacing me so I think that 
that kind of took care of that. Wow. Okay. Interesting. John, anything? Well, Fritz, John and I, once in a while, we'll just throw off subjects for, you know, five minute quick discussion. And, uh, so, something that, that affects ABBA players, we hope. When you score a baseball game, what system do you use? I don't score them anymore, but uh, when I did as a kid and into my teenage years, uh, I used the ABBA score sheets. Which and one, you use the one through nine there? then for positions? Um, yes, but not, uh, not when I was a, a kid. Uh, and used to listen on the radio, or after we got a television, watch on TV. No, I didn't. I didn't even know the numerical positions. I would guess till I was maybe eleven or twelve. Okay. I don't think I saw an actual uh, conventional uh, scorecard until I played little league. Yeah. Mm. So you would just you would just put PO for pop up, FO for fly out, no position. No, I didn't note it batter to batter. I just recorded it on what uh, APA called its fast tabulation score sheets. That's, Ooh, as far okay. as, that's as far as I took it. I didn't do a pitch by pitch, and the, I didn't do anything elaborate. I, I guess in the business they call that the FTSS. The uh, uh, you know, the, the, I guess in the office, that's what you would call it, the, the score sheet. I you know, I don't think I've ever used a, an APA score sheet. And, and, and all the years I've played, I think I've used like, you know, the score sheets I, uh, you know, you buy at the at the uh, sporting goods store, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. Here, here's a story for you. When I was a kid, I'm, I'm uh, going backwards uh, in your sequence of events here. But uh, uh, I came to consider APA the ultimate authority on everything. And uh, in 19, it is, isn't it? I'm going to guess 1957. And that's right. Give or take a year, give or take a year. Uh, I was permitted by my parents to stay up late and listen to the opening game, which was uh, Robin Roberts against Don Newcomb and the Dodgers. And I was allowed to stay up unless it went into extra innings and I had to go to bed. So, of course, it did go into extra innings. <laughs> and my parents relented and let me stay up. And uh, in the, uh, who knows, 10th, 11th, 12th inning, Gino Simoli won the game with a home run. And this came out of the blue because in the only card I'd ever seen for Gino Simoli, he only had a six on 66. <laughs> how, could, how could this happen? <laughs> it was unfair. <laughs> yeah, that three-run homer, you know, when, when you roll with the runner at third, or the two-run homer with the runner at third. You're right. That game, a 12-inning contest, Simoli hit the home run at the top of the 12th inning, Brooklyn won seven to six. Okay. But you got I thought, to stay I thought it was six to five, so I was off. You just a little, just a little. But it was that old Connie Mac, and and that's the other thing. I mean, you grew up in Phil in, in, in Pennsylvania. You were a Phillies fan, and of course, in 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 1950, you were probably still too young and maybe not a big baseball fan at that time. Of course, that was the year of the Whiz Kids. After that, the Phillies had a couple of decent years, but mostly were mediocre to less than mediocre through your uh, uh, young adolescence and teenage years. Yeah, I became a fan in 1953, and I think I told that story at the convention, so I won't repeat it. But uh, uh, yeah, they were they were close to a 500 team through the mid 50s, and then they they really got horrible. 
58 through 61, I guess. 61 was the year they lost 23 straight. Right, exactly. And uh, you know the story about the Philadelphia fans after they returned from the uh, road trip, ha having broken the streak. The, uh, streak. Do you know that? No, I do not. They lost 23 straight games. The 23rd was the first game of a doubleheader, I believe, in Milwaukee. Not sure of that. The second game of the doubleheader, they won and broke the streak. They flew back to Philadelphia, and they were welcomed by fans and carried around on the fans' shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> that is Philadelphia, and it, that would not happen in any other city. Uh, no, you're right. And, uh, you know, and, and that, that is true. A lot of people, you know, feel like uh, – uh, Philadelphia fans are so tough, but boy, they love their home teams, the Eagles, the Phillies, yeah. uh, you know, the Broad Street Bullies, the, the Flyers. I mean, they, they really do support their teams. Well, Absolutely. What do you think about the 64 collapse? Was it Gene Rock's fault or scheduling or just bad luck? Wait, I have to recover my voice first. I'm still in tears over this. <laughs> I was I was off to college in the fall of 1964, and my first full day in college, uh, the Phillies beat the Dodgers on the West Coast to take the six and a half game lead back home for the uh, seven game homestand during which they were expected to clinch uh, the yeah. game. And uh, uh, I know I could tell you the score of the first seven games. The last three were in St. Louis, and I don't know that I remember the games, but yeah, that was. Uh, that was uh, very hard to take. Uh, yeah. Was, well, to answer your question, John, I think I don't remember all the possibilities you listed, but I think it was all the above. Yeah, there was some bad luck. Second, they really played over their heads most of the season. You compare the personnel on that team mm. to, to the Giants or the Reds or exactly. the Braves. I mean, it's not even close. You're exactly um, right. But yeah, Mock, Mock contributed to the. Uh, the talk about pitching bunny and short every day is overstated, but they did pitch on two days rest, I think maybe two times each. And uh, it was, it was unnecessary, you know, have what's mm -hmm. called today a bullpen game and give them their regular rest. So Mock, Mock, I think knew that he didn't have the team that the other teams had and he panicked at the end. Uh, yeah. But boy, I, I love that team and I would love them today because they played baseball, right? squeeze plays and sacrifice bunts sure. and hit and runs and not uh every batter every other batter striking out uh yeah so yeah, yeah I, I, it's i it still hurts it really does <laughs> yeah, I, you're doing a 64 replay right now how are the phillies doing yeah i am and uh, uh fritz I, I am proud to announce that uh we have uh, just uh, about uh two weeks past the all-star game the phillies lead the national league by nine games over the Giants nine games and, and it's, I not, it's not enough John no I <laughs> you know I keep I, I have these two trains of thought is one is eh, this is going to be kind of a boring replay down at the end at least and the American League race is incredible the uh, top six teams are within three games of first place but in the National League the Phillies and you're exactly right and I read a lot of books about that 64 season the Phillies way overachieved through the first really three quarters of the season. I mean, they played above their heads and that's exactly what they're doing in this replay. Anytime they need a big hit, they get it. They need a big pitch game. They get it. Uh, they're 21 and six, I think in one run games in my replay. 
They they just have done everything right. And I am of your thinking. Something's going to happen here towards the end of the season because the Giants are good. The Cardinals are good. The Reds are good. The Reds are really bad in the replay. But, um, you know, and, and I think most everybody who listens to this podcast knows that my uncle pitched for the Phillies, Art and Haffey. And who's uh, your uncle? Yeah, yeah. He's my well. He's my mom's. He's actually my cousin because he's my mom's first cousin. Oh, yeah. But uh, yeah, but he and he's from Cincinnati, and and uh, he well, first it's pretty well documented that he and Mock didn't get along. Mock thought he was soft because when Artie's arm was hurting, he would tell him he'd say, "I'm not sure I can go." And Mock just well, that if you can't go, you're going to sit and you're not going to see action for a long time. And so he would. And if, if, if Artie went out and he didn't have it in the first two innings, he was yanked immediately. And he wasn't the only one. There were guys that Mock would have grievances against during the season. And they, he would sit them and they wouldn't pitch for a while. But, uh, you know, I also heard that, that Mock was very vocal during the season. But during that losing streak, he became oddly quiet and really couldn't come up with anything to say. And it, 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 it really is, is when I read the books about it, it's really kind of eerie when, when you think about it and how the players must have felt. And I know Jim Bunning said comments on it, uh, but it, it, it had to be just earth shattering for the fans of Philadelphia who had already been sending in their money for World Series tickets. Well, you also have to go back to 1950 when almost the same thing happened. Mm-hmm. I don't, for, I forget the lead they had uh, five or six games around the middle of September and they wound up having to beat the Dodgers on the last day of the season to avoid a playoff. Wow. So they so almost fans, lost So fans who were really fans uh, never really uh, put money in the bank because they were always afraid, but six and a half up with 12 to go was, it seemed even to me pretty safe. Art Mahaffey, I will tell you, I saw him pitch a game in person, of course. Oh, I saw him pitch several games in person. But one was toward the end of the 64 season. It was one of the best games I ever saw. And he pitched uh, – he didn't uh, he didn't win. In fact, he gave up a home run to Jose Pagan in the seventh or eighth inning, hmm. uh, which put the Giants ahead. And what I remember is – and this is the way things work those days. The next guy up was Willie McCovey. <laughs> Mahaffey, of course – Threw a fastball right at his head, which is what you did after a home run in those days. <laughs> yeah, but probably easily got out of the way because he was expecting it anyway. Right. The, the Phillies won that game in the end, and in the, I re, don't remember all the details, but it included a home run by Frank Thomas and a stolen base by Jack Baldwin. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it really, and Artie himself says when he was good, he was really, really good, but when he was bad. He was really, really bad. And I mean, arm issues really cut his, his career very short, but man, he was, he was, he, he was the thing before they picked up Bunning from Detroit. He was, he was the main man on that staff and uh, uh, just a, a shame the way that 64 season went. And then of course his career ended, I think right after the 66 season, you know what, Fritz, you're exactly right. I'm looking here at the at the uh schedule for the 1950 season on september 20th the phillies were seven and a half games in first place oh even i didn't realize it was that much yeah and then 11 games later they were up one game and facing brooklyn 
on October 1st, the final day of the season, and they ended up winning four to one. So uh, you're exactly right. I had no idea about that. But that Robin, is- Roberts, Robin Roberts made his third start in five days, pitched all 10 innings, and started the winning 10th inning rally with a single. Wow. Wow. That is, you that know, is, we'll, we'll see that again soon. No, yeah. Yeah. Robin Roberts, he was, he was a great one. But uh, I, I, this is great. I think the reminiscing is all this great. It's about yeah. your Mahaffey, one, more, one more word about Mahaffey. He, he was a phenom when he came up in 61 or 62. He had mm-hmm. huge strikeout games for those days. Oh, yeah. He, he held the Philly single game strikeout record of 19 up until I think sometime in the early 2000s. If I if I'm not mistaken, I can't remember who broke it, but yeah, he struck out 19 Cubs, I think it was, in uh, in 1961 during that horrible season. But he was their only bright light. Um, but you know, I, and he says that it's and this was common during that era is that you know you pitched in the cold and the, the, they pitch you 10 innings yeah, in, in, in the early season and guys' arms would just blow out and. And they were afraid to tell their 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 skippers because then they would be put back in the list or be called soft like Mock did. And so, uh, you know, a lot of guys' careers ended. And, of course, they don't have the technology today to fix those problems. And, uh, you know, it, it, it is a shame. Yeah, Art was, was really uh, the centerpiece of that Philly uh, staff. And, and I, I talked to Jim Bunning. A friend of mine had run into Jim Bunning and mentioned that, Art was was my cousin, and Bunning says of all the players on that Phillies team through those years, he said uh, uh, Art Mahaffey was the best athlete uh, of all of them. The guy could hit, he could field, he could run, and obviously he could pitch. So, uh, uh, yeah, I, I I I just wish Art played Appa because I could get him on the podcast, but I. I, I <laughs> well, I think- do you remember his specific unusual claim to fame? Yeah, he picked off the first three batters that reached base on him. Not only that, he regularly picked guys off second base. And when he would whirl the throw to second base, he was so convincing the runners would head to third. <laughs> Honestly, I, I bet he I bet he picked off a dozen people, runners off second base. Uh, yeah, he had a great move to first, too. Yeah, he had a great move that a lot of people thought were balk moves. But regardless... He, yeah, he picked off the first three guys and predicted he would pick them off. He said, if anybody gets on, I'm taking them. <laughs> one one more comment about the 64 Phillies, and then you can get back to your agenda. The Phillies, besides punting and short, the Phillies had three top-line pick pitchers, starting pitchers, Mahaffey, Ray Culp, and Dennis Bennett in 64, and they all had bad arms, and only one of them, Culp, had any success after that. Yeah, Absolutely. That's, that's they, were, they were all they were all young and they were all spectacular when they came up. Yeah, yeah, and that uh, well, we could we could talk forever about the '64 Phillies, especially. I mean, that's that's right in my wheelhouse, and obviously, you being a Phillies fan, and uh, and uh, John, uh, uh, I don't know what you did with those '64 cards, but uh, the the revamp is is working well for him in my replay. We'll see how it all turns out. <laughs> Let me know. <laughs> I will. Hey. This has been great, guys, and this is just the beginning. I want to remind everybody that that uh, this is going to be a series of, of podcasts that John and Fritz and I are going to do. And, and you know, not only go – it really is going to cover Fritz's history uh, in the Appa Game Company and his life, but 
but also just APA in general. And, and the three of us are going to chat and just kind of go off, off, off track a little bit like we just did. But uh, <laughs> I, I think it'll no, but I think that's a, that, that'll be fun. Oh, I agree. That'll, that'll be fun to do. And, and, and we'll do this again and, and we'll put it up. And and uh, as I mentioned, Fritz and I did uh, a podcast about three years ago, and I'm going to try to find that and link that up and also link uh, the discussion that he and, uh, and uh, Greg Wells had at this past convention um so people can listen to that as well but i can't wait for the next time we get together we're going to do it in a couple of weeks and and uh fritz great to have you great to talk to you john is always good to have you and so uh let's do it again think 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 of stuff you want to talk about anything is fair game here on the podcast uh i would like to wish everybody a a great thanksgiving because that's coming up thursday and Fritz, I appreciate you doing this. I really do. Thank you. Same, same wishes to everybody. And thanks for the opportunity. This is lots of fun. Same here. And uh, Fritz, always, always great to have, have you aboard and, and to talk with you and John Samer there. And so we're going to end it right there. Hope you'll uh, be back for our next edition of this week in APA. And uh, we'll do it in a couple more weeks with Fritz and John Hurston. Talk to you then. Take great. care. Thank you. Take care. Got it.